Hello and welcome to the Talking Food with Bid Food podcast. I'm Joe Anglis and on the menu for this episode we'll be talking about the top food and drink trends for 2023. I'm really excited to say that we'll be joined by a true expert in this area as later on we'll be discussing this with Michelin star chef Michael Kane's MBE. Michael is one of the UK's most celebrated and acclaimed chefs. He's a successful and imaginative hotelier, a respected spokesman for the hospitality industry, and he is a patron and fundraiser for a number of national and local charities and community organisations. You may have also seen him on TV too, as he is a regular on programmes such as Saturday Kitchen, MasterChef and The Great British Menu. As well as that, he has an amazing collection of hotels and restaurants, including his flagship Limpstone Manor in East Devon. But before bringing Michael on, we'll be discussing the fantastic research and support that our Insights team have collated in our Food and Drink Trends report for next year. Every year, our team puts together this comprehensive trend support ahead of the new year, and this is led by our Insights and Research Manager, Holly Rogers. I'm glad to say for this episode, Holly joins me as co-host. So welcome back to the podcast, Holly. Thank you very much, Joe. It's good to be back. No problem at all. So to kick things off, Holly, please, can you share a bit of an overview of the process for how you come up with the food and drink trends for next year? Yeah, of course. So quite a lot of research and work has gone into coming up with the trends for next year. We've done a real mix um, of different things. So we worked in partnership with CGA by Nielsen IQ, which are an out of home insights specialist um, partner of ours. And within that, we commissioned some interviews of food and drink influencers and chefs that have really wide following on social media. Um, we also did a bespoke consumer survey to over 2000 UK consumers to really understand the sort of the main trends, the flavors, the behaviors that they're looking at out of home. Um, and we also did a wealth of desk research as well to add to this. So any of the key themes that we got from our um bespoke consumer survey and interviews we then went and explored further with desk research and then finally we also went out in London and also Brighton to actually visit different restaurants and speak to operators and see how the trends that we'd identified were actually cropping up on menus um, and also what consumers seemed to be enjoying on the high street and that was a really interesting process because we got to ask different questions to the chefs and the operators in those restaurants as well and really understand their perspectives behind the trends. Yeah, I bet. And what were the key trends that were highlighted in the research? We came up with six key food and drink trends this year, and some of them have sub trends within them. So the first one is conscious choices. We then got flavors less traveled, which is all about different cuisines that are trending. We've got pizza evolution, in the spirit, nature's gifts and retro love. And I'll go into a little bit more detail um, in later in the podcast on what is covered in those trends. That's great. Thank you, Holly. I'm really looking forward to hearing Michael's thoughts on all of these and if he can bring any of these ideas to life as well. So without any further delay, let's bring him onto the podcast. Welcome, Michael, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be with you. So before we look at any of the food and drink trends for 2023, We'd really like to gauge your thoughts on how important it is to consider food and drink trends when planning menus at a time when it's it's really tough because we're facing a cost of living crisis and recessionary conditions. So in your opinion and knowledge of the market, are chefs and operators interested in trends right now? 
or is it your feeling that they are wholly consumed by the operational and cost challenges they're facing on a day-to-day? Well, I think we're very consumed at the moment with the current crisis and how we respond to that. But it would be wrong not to plan and consider the influence of the trends as we move forward, because ultimately you're trying to attract people to your business. And in doing so, you want to also expand your horizon of opportunity. And so I think actually now is a good time to really focus on what those potential opportunities and trends might be as we seek to perhaps capture the imagination of a new market and also um, deal with some of the changing economic times because some of those trends are actually, some of them could be cost-effective and also help us uh, perhaps we we align our product offer. And tends what tends to happen in, in, a, in a moment of crisis is it really does uh, expedite uh, trends towards moving towards a certain direction. So it's quite interesting that you actually, if you look at where the direction of travel is, is in the last two years, things like Zoom and Teams and actually working from home with it were accelerated through a crisis. Uh, and I think what we'll see in, in hospitality perhaps is an opportunity for people to uh, realign their product and come out uh, stronger. So when we did our insights um, and research this year to come up with the food and drink trends, we actually came up with six key um, food and drink trends that we believe are sort of set to really shape the eating out market in 2023 um, and beyond as well. The first of those six is conscious choices. And I guess conscious choices is maybe a bit more of a behavioural social trend as opposed to strictly a food trend. Um, But that's all about consumers being more mindful about their decisions in terms of looking at costs, health, sustainability, um, and just putting more thought, I suppose, into what they're prepared to spend money on when they're out of home. And then we've got flavours less travelled. And that is, it's a bit of an umbrella trend with um, our cuisines. And that's all about looking at more emerging cuisines that are slightly off the beaten track. So this year we've got Cuban, Pan-African, Sri Lankan, which is definitely my personal favourite. And we've got unusual fusions as well, which is all about a kind of no rules approach to menus and combining maybe less typical cuisines together. We've also got pizza evolution, which, again, I think some people were surprised at because pizza definitely isn't anything new. But it's just something that we see continuing to grow more and more momentum in the market. And we've got in the spirit, which is our alcoholic drinks trend. And that covers popular cocktails and the spirits that are trending this year where um, the two main spirits we're looking at are rum and tequila. And then we've got Nature's Gifts. And Nature's Gift is all about kind of stripping it back to basics. So looking at really natural, sustainable ingredients. Um, We've got two subtrends in that. So one of them is plant power and one of them is foraged finds. And then the final trend is retro love. Um, This is the one that I think at Bid Food we're the most excited about this year because it's quite novel and fun and there's a lot of scope for creativity with that. And retro love is all about kind of provoking nostalgia with food and drink and looking at maybe comfort foods. And there's a lot of desserts that we're seeing on the market now that are, say, themed around confectionery that people remembered as a child or dishes that they might sort of associate with going to their grandma's house when they're younger. So it really helps people who are looking, I think, for a sense of comfort. Quite a lot to take in at once. <laughs> um, but yeah. I just wondered, out of our 2023 trends, are there any that particularly resonate with you? Are any that you're really excited to see emerge this year or that you really think have a lot of potential? Well, there's a few, actually. I think I think all of them are well considered. And actually, I don't disagree with, with any of them. I think this interesting for me is this sort of less travelled flavour, this idea of these emerging sort of uh, Sri Lankan, Cuban and, and Pan-African. And, and certainly we're seeing 
people's interest in in food move, moving towards certainly Africa uh, as well as um, you know heading to places like India and Sri Lanka. And Cuba is always an interesting one too. It's one of those things that it opens up that it becomes a little bit more interesting because it's so sort of stuck in a time and traditional. I think conscientious choices can't you can't ignore that with what's going on in the climate, what's what's going on also uh, with the emerging new generation that perhaps are looking to make more of a conscientious decision about what they buy and its influence and, and impact it has on the environment is is without question one of those things that is definitely there. I think also nature's gift, I think, you know, um, that's also um, part of that trend of going back to basics, but also keeping it simple and making the most of what we've got. I think it's probably an interesting trend because, you know, Brexit has created a lot of problems in the supply chain too. So I think businesses are being forced to look at what they've got around them more. Not that that trend wasn't there anyway, but, you know, if you can't get the exotic products through the door, um as easily as we used to uh at a price that's affordable then you tend to look at making the most of what's what you've really got and what you can use so that that's one aspect there i think um um if you're looking at um things like spirits i think it's definitely everybody accepts that sort of gin has its day and rum is is, is sort of like an emerging trend uh, and cocktails remain um uh, very very popular it's interesting that tequila's taken a little bit of a re-emergence as well but I also think that well-being drinks uh, that are plant-based and also products like, um, you know, products that are using um, the idea of using things like CBD and, and well-being products, I think, is, is, is really important. I think mindfulness is an emotion. Uh, so we call it emotive travel and is very much a part where people sort of wanting to to live a healthy life, eat a healthy food. But that means doesn't mean to say it can't be tasty. We're seeing move towards more plant-based so i think they're quite good and of course pizza everybody loves pizza pizza's just one of those staples now you know it's it's a bit a bit like the curry is, is almost quintessentially english or, or, or british um i think pizza's now become a staple with on most people's uh, offer it's also a very cost-effective way uh and a tasty way uh, of eating uh you know very um quick and easy as well so i think all of them really touch on key elements and they kind of hint to uh, a movement for a sort of young and old generation too when we're talking about nostalgia i think there's a lot of that going on what go what comes around goes around again I, I think that's always the case but also i think it's also this idea that some of the stuff that we used to do perhaps you know we kind of very very quick to move on and try new new things but actually when you look at what uh you know we used to have you know um they're actually very very irrelevant i think we just need to you know perhaps remodel them and there's always a need for a, a, a young generation coming up through to recreate perhaps a, a good old, a few classics in the past um so i think all of them i think really i think they're re really well chosen i think when i look at all of them i think they've all got some really important touch points for our guests old and new certainly a lot of them also go towards a younger generation uh that are coming through with conscientious decisions uh but also moving away perhaps from the the european way of thinking and eating heading towards uh, places like you know pan-african and and and, and sri lankan food is is interesting because they're, they're really not known so they're very much an emerging taste and a very much an emerging market so that's really interesting to see that as well something i'll look out for i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna and i'm gonna go out holly and, and try uh sri lankan uh food and if there's any particular restaurant that you think i should try then i'll put it on the list but no i think so all of them i think I've, i think they all resonate with me i think they all have um 
significant relevance in in the market now. And I think you know when you talk about foraging, that's it, we've got to do that in a sustainable way. So that always comes with a you know a caveat that says, listen, you just can't go out and rate rate the countryside looking to forage stuff. And there's a reason why things that are being foraged didn't really make it into the food chain because a lot of them are quirky, but not necessarily uh, you know really easy to grow or and or um, in demand. So I think what we're seeing is a lot of the foraged items now being industrially um, grown because they're becoming popular. So I think foraging is in, interesting, but I think really it's a, it, I see that more of a reconnection with the land and also going back to sort of wild food and wild um, you know items that perhaps have been lost over time. That's really interesting, a really good overview as well. <clears throat> One of the things that you mentioned was around nature's gifts. And I understand that showcasing local food provenance and quality messaging is very close to your heart and, and you use it a lot in terms of how the foundations of your success have been. So what is it that you think is really appealing to consumers and why you've been sort of shouting about it so much? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. This sort of notion of farm to fork is still very, very, very popular. I think we have a lot more identity for regional foods going on, certainly through protein based as well. But also we're seeing now, as you say, that people look, look towards more of a plant based diet. We're looking also to see what we can get uh, locally in terms of vegetables. Um, and, and I think that's that's that means to say that we're getting a much more seasonal approach in our menus, because obviously the UK has a very short growing season for certain products. And as we're moving out of the the autumn into the summer, that becomes slightly more challenging. Um, but I think what's important is that we we recognise what we've got and we celebrate that. I mean, we all acknowledge that we haven't got olive groves and we love olive oil, but rapeseed oil is really good. Uh, and whilst not an alternative, it's also healthy. And, and so it's incorporating uh, products like that into our diets, which are, which, are, which are also interesting. But it's also acknowledging at the same time that with regionality comes a, a bit of a sense of taste and a sense of place. There's this notion that we you know if you can only have you know food from a particular area not only is that good for the 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 environment in terms of reducing food miles but also putting you know a good impact in terms of money in local farms money in local producers pockets we're also seeing you know um the idea that you know that you can have you know a sense of taste from a regional perspective if you're a lamb or your pork or your beef is from there. And I think also there's this focus now on thinking about regenerative farming and regenerative farming techniques, this concept if you if you don't use it, you you lose it. And there's lots of breeds, you know, old breeds or, or, or can we say things like things on the taste of bark through slow food where we're seeing, you know, produce and that the, the, the perhaps if not championed and used on menus through through restaurants, we'd lose that, that identity with those products and those areas forever. So I think there's this reconnection with the land goes with also reconnection with with what we con consider to be indigenous produce or breeds as well. Uh, and I think that's 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 really, really where we are in terms of uh, how we can tell a story about food through where where we are in our regions. And I think people like that as well. And that's very much really a cultural thing with food. And we talked about where there's great culture, there's always great food. Well, we kind of lost our food identity in the UK. So it's nice to see. Uh, that we're reconnecting a little bit of that food uh, story through, through through locally sourced uh, and and locally produced product coming on to the menus and becoming a feature. And actually farms, even chefs now have got their own farms, are growing their own produce 
and they're featuring that on their their menu too. And that's a really important. The impact that has on the environment is is also something that you need to recognise as well. Suppose it feels a bit like consumers are sort of reappreciating or gaining a new appreciation of what the UK really sort of has to offer. And I think it's maybe come at a time as well where people are doing that travel-wise as well. So like the staycation kind of boom that I think was driven partly by the pandemic. But then since then, they seem to have come quite hand in hand. So people exploring new places around the UK, but then also wanting to try what the local ingredients and food are. Holly, I, I really think that's a good point. I think it's, it's, it's you know, last two years we've, we've, we've invested in in the UK economy. You know, we've all travelled uh, abroad and, and been inspired by that. And food's no different, you know, and we're always looking for the next food trend to inspire us. And I think that's really important. So what we've also need to recognise is we can bring some of those eclectic flavours from around the world and apply them to to what we have here in the in the UK. I mean, the, the fact that our vegetables are from the local farm doesn't stop us from turning that into a deliciously inspired meal from Sri Lanka or Pan Africa. So, you know, I think what what we're sort of seeing is that these um, other cultures that are using plant based as part of their meal base fit quite well within our with our own uh, uh, diets but also within our own farming techniques here, because there are certain things and ingredients that we can grow and grow really well, and, and they fit quite well uh, within a, within certain diets. So I think it's, it's, it's really important that we continue to, to, to inspire local food with the world of food uh, and the taste of the world of food. Uh, um, because now in Britain, you know, we know that our consumer is very, very educated when it comes to you know, tastes of the world, you know, you, you go to a supermarket and you see the ingredients that you've got, but you, you could also recognize that, you know, we're buying, you know, we're eating foods from, you know, South America, uh, Asia, uh, and also, you know, Europe, you know, and in Europe, it could be Spanish, Italian, it could be, you know, all types of uh, different foods that we're all experiencing. And that's re- and Scandinavian, of course. So it's really interesting where our diets have developed and, and actually where our food food tastes are now. Do you think psychologically that adds a sort of premium element to your menu as well? We talked earlier about like the cost of crisis and people potentially spending less, but is a lot of research saying that people want to be looking for premium experiences, but does that kind of add to the feel to that on your menu then? Well, you know, back along um, pre-pandemic, people were talking about luxury becoming less of a consumer choice, but it's it's not true that people... People are still indulging in luxury brands, but there is a reality check that as as the consumer as has become, you know, becomes wealthier, they want to improve their knowledge. So what we're finding is that they want they want immersive experience, and there's an emotional score to that. They also want luxury and quality, but they want that done ethically, and they want to know that 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 you have a strong understanding of what that means. Because whilst they're happy to travel on a plane. When they get there, they want that sort of goop-free pleasure. They want to know that you've offset some of that, you know, that you're you're thinking about reducing single-use plastic, that you're buying locally sourced food and that you're doing it in a seasonal way. But they also want this uh, educational aspect. They want the knowledge. They, they want to, to learn and, and be educated uh, as part of the experience. And, it, and it, what we're finding in the top end is that there's still a huge amount of appetite for people to come and learn about wine, learn about spirits, learn about cocktails, the bars becoming really, really a focal point socially for people again in hotels and restaurants as well. We're seeing that people, perhaps younger generations, don't drink as much, but they're happy to eat out and, and drink socially. 
but they're less obsessed. They don't, the binge culture that was my generation has gone to become socially accepted. It's not necessarily acceptable to be antisocial and socially people are a lot more engaged on their phones uh, than they then perhaps their, uh, the previous generation is. So they're much more into the imagery of food and much more, but they're still very, and also the travel. And so this idea that people can still have those uh, those flavors of the world back at home are really important. And I think for me, as I look at luxury, luxury also, there's something to be really valued in something as precious as something that is local. We have to start to value what we have locally. And if that uh, is under threat through both economic circumstances and environmental circumstances, then we need to understand that food is not cheap anymore, that food as a resource is going to get more expensive and that actually we're going to have to start to pay more per capita per, per you know per person's income towards food and for it to be more sustainable uh we also need to offset the cost that if you're eating in restaurants the reality is people are being paid more and heat and the light is going going up and so there's no such thing as a, a cheap a cheap night out anymore so we have to start valuing what we've got and i think what that's an educational thing too and when i think about you know how people are are interacting with food and in a very high uh, end it's about the creativity of the chef as well it's about their ability to take humble foods which perhaps are inexpensive but turn them into things of value uh, and that is through great technique and a wonderful uh, ability to, to cook and present that in, in, a, in a really well welcoming and, and really uh, luxurious environment and that's that's that doesn't mean to say that just because you're using i don't know uh, a, a less uh, valuable resource of ingredients that you can't cook that in a luxury and give it a luxury feel so i think what we're seeing is that you know people aren't necessarily defining luxury through prime cups of meat you know they're not they're doing it through the 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 ability to turn that into an amazing tasty food whether it be vegan or vegetarian food at the end of the day it still takes the same time effort and 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 and, and money to invest to make that product a really tasty and enjoyable well presented product so we're seeing that the the people's effects you know through through their diets is having influence in impact their dislikes and likes and their allergens and their preference choice when it comes to being vegan vegetarian or or or, or, or pescatarian these are all having real effects on the way that we're thinking about the luxury market but there's a massive appetite for people to go out and spend good money on eating out through fine food and, and wine. And that that trend's not stopping. We're seeing our customer becoming younger. So historically, that customer base used to be in its 70s. They're now in their mid-40s. And we're seeing that people are engaging with food a lot earlier, but they want that immersive experience. They want the knowledge and they want to know that you're doing your bit to, to safeguard the environment. It's interesting you say about the kind of the emphasis on I guess, like the aesthetics of food as well as the ingredients and how it tastes. And I think you're right with people using social media more and every sort of other table in a restaurant has people taking pictures of their meals to post on yeah. post on Instagram. Um, and in our trends, when we were looking at the nature's gift trend, um, we visited a few different plant-based restaurants. And one of the things that we really noticed was that, you know, a lot of the dishes, because they are using natural ingredients and plants, they're really, really colourful. And I think yeah. that trend kind of lends itself well to really, um, yeah, like attractive, aesthetically pleasing mm. um, food. Um, one of the things that we found, um, I suppose, a bit surprising with our research was that um, there seems to be a bit of a gap in the market at the minute for people 
wanting vegetarian dishes because I think there's been quite a move towards the vegan diet and a focus on plant-based strictly vegan dishes and a lot of um, operators seem to have the sort of main menu and maybe a vegan menu and there's not as much emphasis in some places on vegetarian meals is that something that has surprised you or is it something that kind of rings true to you in your restaurants and hotels yeah, I think I think what I would take from that is is when the, the 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 minority reality has an impact on the majority of the choice. And what I mean by that is that look, when you're preparing menus, your window of creativity and having, for instance, let's just say thirty percent of our customers is now looking to be ve- vegan or vegetarian, and of that, only ten percent are vegan. The problem is for the restaurant, they need to always cater for the ten percent. So what tends to happen is that the vegan or vegetarian menu becomes the vegan menu which is then suitable vegetarians, which then means to say that, you know, you're ticking those two boxes with one menu choice. So what? So I think really what, what you're seeing is that a lot of people are overcompensating for the vegan choice and then realise and then ticking the vegetarian box as part of the same, uh, where they're not. Uh, so what I would say to that is, yes, I can understand. But I think what's interesting is that now when people talk about plant-based, they're not talking about veganism. They're talking about they're choosing to eat vegetables because they want a better butt diet they're not saying we are vegeta- we're not we're not saying we don't eat meat what we're saying is that we want to eat less meat so what we're actually realizing is that actually if you've got incorporated on your menu really tasty diverse you know plant-based or and or vegan and vegetarian choices people will uh, choose that because they'll just think well you know what i'm just today i'm just going to eat less meat or less fish and ditto with fish we find that Actually, people are moving towards eating proteins like fish because they find it a lot lighter and easier to digest um, and healthier choices, too. So things like leaner meats are, are really important and move towards, you know, less a use of reliance on, say, um, well, you know, we don't want to necessarily have so much red meat, for instance. Um, so these things are important. Chicken still is very, very popular in a lot of casual restaurants as well. So. I, I can see the gap in the market emerging a little bit as you go to cater for the extremes. Um, and I think really what we need to to sort of do is, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we just need to get readdress that balance a little bit by uh, by choice. But of course, adding choice in menus is, is really difficult at a time where you're struggling to get staff. And, uh, and it's OK if you're a big concept that's got a central production kitchen and, and they send it out to the restaurants from the centre uh, to be executed because you can deal with that a little bit easier. But if you're an independent, you've got to then decide where your menu needs to be focused on. And if the majority of your menu is going to be 80%, you know, uh, people that are are wanting to have meat, uh, you know, then that's where you're going to focus. Or you're going to go the extreme and be 100% vegan or or 100% vegetarian. And I think, you know, that's, that's where we are. So it doesn't surprise me. But at the same time, it's so much easier to cook for vegetarian than it is a vegan Um, anyway. So there's an opportunity. Um, but I think, you know, the move towards plants um, is as much as it is about anything. It's also about health choice, how about healthy eating and get a better balance in, in, in the diet. And this sort of, you know, this idea that I mean, you know, the idea that everybody can afford steak is it seems to be to the detriment of the of, of farming anyway, because you know, there's only so many steaks you can get from the animal and then the value of the animal needs to be about all the other cuts of meat that you can get on that animal. So, you know, I think carcass balance and a re-addressing menu balance is really important as part of the argument. And when you're talking about 
that gap that's emerging with vegetarian i think that's because we're trying to cater for the extremes that's really interesting and you kind of touched upon it a bit um with your answer there and talking about the, the challenges you're facing um obviously with the impending recession that we we're all talking about everyone's talking about what learnings do you think that you've gained from previous recessions that you think could help with uh, hospitality businesses to be more resilient in the face of the difficult conditions that they're going to face in 2023? Yeah, very good um, question. Uh, when I looked at, when I read that question, I thought, well, well, first of all, I, it makes me feel old <laughs> and uh, because, you know, I am, I'm in my fifties. So I've been through a lot. I think what I'd probably say is that, look, when I look at the recessions we've had in the past, they were slightly different. And, and, but what tends to happen is that the top, and the and the bottom seem to be resilient. So the you know the lower entry level and and the higher entry le- and the higher they're okay. And it's a bit in the middle, the sandwich in the middle that tends to thin out. Um, and I think you know if you think about it from a retail concept point of view, you know pound places like Poundland sort of sprung off that in the two thousand and sixes. You know with people looking to get more for their pound. The reality now is that the, the situation we're in now is a combination of a few you know very specific issues one is obviously the energy cost two is the um the headache if you like from brexit also the acute shortage of staff and and three is obviously um you can't escape the fact that you know <clears throat> cost of living uh pay rises and and all of these things are having a big impact on our businesses so we're seeing less demand in our in our restaurants because we see a fall in demand because people obviously have less to spend we have, you know, businesses that haven't been able to grow and expand their business in the last two, three years. So they've got very tough challenges with cash flow. And so what we're seeing is that there's a lot of businesses now that are simply running out of energy and, and money and can't keep up with the cost of living. And, you know, if you put the wages up, if we put the prices up, then at, the, at a time where people can't afford to go out, then it's kind of like a, a perfect storm of bad scenarios. So my 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 feeling, objective feeling here is that we're we're not immune from it uh, at all. In fact, uh, is look, you know, we just have to play the long game. We need to think about how we can get through the next six months, you know, through the winter, because a lot of us has traded, you know, uh, through some difficult winters in the last two three years. Um, a lot of businesses have taken on additional debt uh, through COVID loans that they have to service. And now they're at a particularly difficult point where they're perhaps not getting the businesses through the door at a crucial time, which means say the cash flow are really, really diff- in a really difficult position. So and still struggling to find staff. So I think what will happen is the staffing issue becomes less 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 of a factor as as people close their businesses and or not able to reopen. And I think what which is a shame, but the reality is as as, as restaurants close, there'd be that'll sort out perhaps some of the challenges in the labour market. Um, and I think, you know, as the recession eases, businesses need to think forward about how, how they're going to attract the, you know, people back into their businesses. Uh, and, and so therefore, you know, looking at some of these trends now and incorporating them into their business plan in six, eight, 12 months down the line, I think it's quite important because, you know, uh, as people reemerge out of a recession, uh, they'll, they'll, first of all, they want to go out and enjoy life again, which is a bit like after the pandemic. But at the same time, they want to make their money will be tight and they want to make decisions based on quality, quality at very different levels. So I think, you know, um, you you know, you still got to invest in quality. You still got to try and grow your business for serving, you know, really great tasting and well served served restaurants. You know, we need to keep investing in, in, in the skill in our staff to make sure that we come out of this in a stronger position. 
but um you know i know that 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 there's going to be a squeeze and i think you know that squeeze is inevitable um and i just hope that you know we can see some relief um in in some of the challenges so that we can you know see more businesses survive um you know and i think um you know part of the reason why we then start to use looking at cheaper cuts of meat and cheaper produce is because we're looking to offer the customer more value. So if, for instance, you've got less to spend, um, you, you've got to make it attractive. So somehow you're going to you know, say to people who've got less money, well, come and you can eat out more because we're going to offer you, you know, more value for lunch, for instance. But that's difficult to service when you haven't got any staff. And I think what we've seen recently is a lot of restaurants closing on Mondays and Tuesdays and not opening for lunch because they don't have the means to do it. So it's it's kind of like a, a really difficult one to predict because it's not like any others. I mean, each one is very, very different and they all have their challenges. But normally a boom bust recession is generally kind of hits you in a in a certain way. And with the last 10 years, we've all been used to cheap money. And so, you know, uh, as your interest rates go up, that's going to affect every household in every way. And um and I think that's 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 a challenge. Is if if people think four and a half percent is a high interest rate, well back in the 80s it was 15% so you know there's a long way to go before people start to to get to there but i don't think we'll get that high but what i'm saying is that ultimately um if you base your whole sort of business plan and and your personal life on low interest rates then clearly now we've got less less money in our pocket at a time where there's other factors coming into squeeze so i think it's if uniquely difficult energy costs are going to stay high for a while it seems um so uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of sat there feeling like I want to be Mystic Meg uh, and, and see a way through it all. But I, I know that it's just going to be a, a little bit of a tough time for a lot of businesses. And I think those that have struggled to get through the pandemic, this is almost like a, a, a more challenging time than because there's no government support. So we don't have any furlough. We don't have any VAT relief. We don't have any uh, business. Uh, well, there are some rate reliefs, but it's going to be challenging. And I think um, the key, key thing is, the domestic market has also gone overseas again. So, you know, whereas before that domestic market was staycation, that was boomed, that was a real help for us to recover. But if people start to travel abroad again, then obviously um, then that's going to have a, an effect too. It's a bit concerning when it's cheaper to go on holiday in, in Spain for the winter than it is to stay at home and, and heat your house. So that's where we're at. But that's that just shows how bizarre life's become. On that sort of topic, I guess, talking about um, the challenges operators are facing um, cost-wise, um, and I guess not just operators, but consumers as well, purse strings are much tighter for consumers. And I think one thing that we're really noticing is that, you know, I suppose for operators, it's harder to justify consumers spending um, more money when they're out. Um, are there any of the trends that we've mentioned that you feel are most kind of beneficial to chefs? Um, from a profit perspective, maybe helping justify higher costs or equally, I suppose, on the flip side, maybe trends that lend themselves well to mitigating costs. I suppose there's a bit of both. Yeah. Well, I think they, yeah, I think ultimately costs are going to, we can't take those costs. The margins of profit are slim in food anyway and have, have been reasonably slim for a while. And I would say that, you know, um, you cannot, you cannot accept, you can't, I think we have to accept the consumer has to accept that, you know, um, once you have inflation, the reality is those prices tend to be baked in. Um, I don't think that 
I can't, I mean, you know, I was looking at my menus for the last 10 years and, and there seems to be a sort of this magical formula that starters should be about £10 and, and, and main courses should be around 20 and desserts around eight. Well, that's been like that for a very, very long time. And I don't think it's like in the supermarkets when you go to, to shop, you, I don't think you can artificially suppress the uh, price to the customer by then going back to supply chain and suppressing their their margins. I mean, it's there's only so much you can you can do before it becomes completely unviable. I think I think we, what we have to acknowledge is that look, you know, things are going to get more expensive, but we could still offer great value. And perhaps you know things like you know when you're talking about pizza evolution, look, pizza is a very inexpensive way of eating, um, but it just but then so is plant based food. So is you know, um, and so are you know a lot of other foods which are perhaps starch based, whether it be risottos or, or lentils or poses. There are lots of different delicious ways of cooking all of these um, uh, different types of proteins, which are also nutritionally good for you and healthy. And I think you know part of the way that we can move forward is to understand that if we can make a less known and less uh, valued ingredients become valuable through creative cooking, then that's going to help get that balance in the menu but it also help you become perhaps more profitable but i think also we also need to recognize that the consumer um is going to perhaps eat out less i mean i was in london the other day and it, there seems to be no shortage of people eating out in fancy restaurants but london is a bit of a bubble um but when you get outside that bubble and you go within the rural communities or within the communities they simply don't have any pubs pubs aren't opening pubs pubs are closing you know and and that we're there and and it's becoming more and more difficult for people to find places to eat out um that they can afford. And and I think really um it's a real it's a really challenging aspect that if you're if you can't staff businesses and you can't offer somewhere for people to go, then that's one of the problems. The other problem you've got is that things are very, 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 very tourist dependable. Places like Cornwall, Devon, there's still lots of the rural economy that's very, very, very seasonally based. So that becomes a, an issue. So I think what I would say is that some of those trends that you've pointed on talk about where the consumer is going in terms of their choices. I think, you know, we can certainly, um, you know, bring that feeling of travel, the world of travel being available through our restaurants. So that's that's certainly uh, a more affordable way of going out and eating around the world is to is to bring the, the world of food closer to home. I think conscientious choices, I think we've got to think about that as what we put on the menu. That that applies to chefs and restaurateurs, you know, perhaps a bit more carcass balance. We use lesser known cuts of meat, lesser known uh, choices of fish, which are more sustainable as well. Um, so I think, you know, look, you know, we look at everything, don't we? We look at perhaps models of way that you can order your food. You know, you order at the table and you, your drinks and we reduce the amount of service we give in restaurants. You change the concepts a little bit in that regard but i think we're in for a little bit of a hard time but these emerging trends are are, are just what they are they're emerging and you, you can't afford to ignore them but you need to put them in the context of the challenges that we have within the industry today but the consumer choice well there'll still be perhaps a lesser market but our market nevertheless is, is is a is a is a we are still a wealthy country and i see that we are more of an eating out certainly now more of an eating out culture than we are eating in so, you know, I think we just need to perhaps think that perhaps people are only going to have one meal a, a day as opposed to two big meals a day. So perhaps when they have that meal, they want it to be nutritious. They want it to be balanced uh, and they want good choice. So 
maybe you know um that's some of the realities we need to think about you know if you're not open for lunch you're only open for dinner um that means to say people might change their eating habits for lunch and then eat eat or vice versa so we just need to understand um that you know there's uh, opportunities within the market but also there are trends emerging and challenges that we need to combine to to to, to stay relevant and also um stay profitable i know you've always done quite a lot of work to support up-and-coming chefs so when you're talking to chefs nowadays what tips do you give them on how to keep menus current interesting and compelling enough to attract customers through the door and keep them coming back well service is too key you know you know great service good value for value for money the perception of value for money well you can get good value at 10 pounds or you can get good value at 100 pound the first thing people notice when you come through a door is the atmosphere the smell and the, the the buzz and then the interaction with your customer is about that smiling face you know and then you're going in the place is buzzing this great is a, it's a great atmosphere and then you sit down and then it's all about then the journey of the customer you know from the moment they come through the door to placing the order to experiencing the food and you know people generally choose because when they look at a well-balanced menu they choose stuff they want to like to eat so there's there's the obvious opportunity is then to if you want to eat you know um you know, a wonderful salad of beetroot with goat's cheese or hello me. You, you just need to make that really tasty. And, and you know, what I love about simple food is that actually it's about really the, the choice of well, well decision about spicing and, and, and what makes food flavorsome. It's the knowledge of the chef and the cultural input that you've got. And it's, you know, when you think about the simple foods of Africa that turn into delicious meals, or, or in the Mediterranean, you know, simple foods in, you know, tapas style or, or, or eating plates, small plates of eating where, or Japanese and Asian food, it's always about that focus of flavor. And so for me, you know, I just think to people, I say, look, you know, to make people come back, first of all, you've got to make them feel welcome. They need to feel that they've had a really good experience, some really lovely flavors food that, that kind of relates to the concept that you're trying to create. And ultimately they, they, they leave feeling they've had good value. Uh, and they want to come back, you know, and if you can keep that magic formula going, you know, a good, a happy customer will tell a friend and a friend will then tell another friend. And then word of mouth is the slowest way of developing a business, but it's the best way. Um, but these days it's more instant because people can post a, post a, a comment and then you can, you can, you know, then echo that comment for your own social media. But look, you know, it's really important that, that we give what I call authentic interactions for our guests um you know there's no good selling the dream and when they get there it's all disappointing so you have to work really really hard uh, from the, the moment people walk through the door to the food they're eating to the to when they say goodbye to ensure that they have a great experience and they want to come back and that's not easy to do i appreciate it and um, so if you've got to create a destination restaurant you've got to understand why people would choose to come to you as opposed to everyone else because there's a lot more a lot of choice in the market you also need to think about what's going to define you in terms of what what's your you know what, what are you going to focus on uh, and 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 then you execute it really well. And, th and those touch points that we talked about, your first impressions all the way to the last impressions are re really important. We get it right because in a competitive market, it's those people that do those things well that will 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 survive. It's interesting you say that about the sort of environment and service as well. We actually just did some research recently on children and parents, so we surveyed both. Um, and it's really interesting sort of getting the difference in priorities from children compared to from parents. And one of the things that stood out was that when they were looking at sort of venue of choice, if they were going out as a family, 
one of the main things they look for is a child-friendly atmosphere. So it indicates that people just want to feel comfortable where they are and kind of welcome as opposed to feeling on edge or uncomfortable. That's interesting because it also supports the demographic that if people are, you know, going out, certainly at the top end in luxury to be more in their late 40s, it's also meaning that the chances are they're going to be turning up with kids. And so we also see the whole dog friendly, child friendly as a very important trend as people choose to 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 go away um, and or eat out uh, without excluding the family. And uh, and and actually, you know, so many people have said that whilst the food is important, the atmosphere and this and, and the gathering of, of friends and being with people is equally important in a great atmosphere. And if the food doesn't distract, but enhances that brilliant because what's distracting is when you get bad services and bad food and it becomes you know it becomes really annoying for people to sit there and, and try and have a family celebration only for it to be dis- distracted by bad food bad service so so absolutely i think you know it's interesting how um how people are seeing eating out to be much more of a family thing rather than just couples we were talking about our retro love trend earlier and that whole kind of emphasis on um, wanting to provoke a sense of nostalgia with consumers. Is there any sort of dish or dessert or cocktail that you particularly um, love that gives you a sense of nostalgia or anything you remember from childhood, say, that you just, or yeah, something you'd see on a menu that you would really enjoy? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> one of the things that I always, and you talked about desserts, I always remember the Black Forest Gatto as a kid was very, very popular. And, uh, you know, that combination is, is classic. Um, but, you know, something is, for me, that quite a comfort thing. I, it's still very, very popular, but things like, you know, crumbles are really humble and crumbles. I love crumbles. You know, very, very humbling. The creme brulee is making a bit of a, a comeback as well. Um, but also, I think, you know, from, a, you know, things that are classics that never dry out, you think like Negronis and, you know, people are starting to appreciate um also um you know whilst you know gin has, has sort of had a, a very very successful period um you know people also looking back and sort of appreciating i know things like sherry and madeira and vermouth are coming back you know it's almost like there's a load of drinks out there that people are rediscovering i know rum is on the up and so is tequila but that that's that's not that's that that is good but i also think there's an emerging interest in in, in british wine as well in, in english wines is coming out but when i look back and i think about nostalgia i do i do recognize that in desserts in particular we're seeing some of that nostalgia coming in into to menus and i think in terms of um british cuisine it's really difficult because if you're thinking about nostalgia when it comes to british cuisine so much of what we've done in the past has probably been shaped by the french or the or the, the europeans but i i also think that you know it's still incredibly popular how sunday roasts are still very much a part of people's eating out culture when it comes to the weekends you wouldn't you wouldn't be, you know you wouldn't believe how many people still and even us you know seek out a, a great sunday roast and i think you know that whole concept of family time around the table that is still very relevant and whilst it's still also very nostalgic because and it'd be and i'm thinking about that as we approach the christmas you know it's amazing to think that the christmas dinner the turkey and all the trimmings still you know, dominate our Christmas landscape. And if it's the vegan, it's everything else except for the turkey or so vegetarian. But ultimately, you know, it's amazing how uh, we hold on to those, nostal- those nostalgic things like Christmas dinner and the Christmas party and, and then Boxing Day and then 
you know, and New Year's. But when we do, and I think it's really important. I think also it's important that we have these periods in 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 the year where we can all get together and celebrate. And Christmas is one of them. So I, I still think, you know, Sunday roast, getting the family together on a Sunday is, is still almost like a ritual thing. Still has a lot to do. I think the Christmas pudding's quite nostalgic. That'll be that'll be coming back with a with a bang as well. But I also think things like Bailey's, you know, that's, uh, you know, Bailey's, it, you know, it's it, it, it kind of like it's a once a year kind of drink, but actually we're seeing more and more people drink that outside of the, the traditional times. So I think for me, nostalgia, I think for me, I don't really have a kind of, you know, go to kind of nostalgia because it's, for me, it's a, it's always, it's kind of almost a living nostalgia because as a, as a chef, you, you're always in people's, um, you're always in people's consciousness that, there are these things that are quite nostalgic, which are still relevant now, um, which people say, oh, my God, yeah, I remember that as a kid going to my grandparents and always have a crumble and they see it on the menu. And that's why I think, you know, you still see a lot of those 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 desserts still what we call them sort of comforting desserts still very much there. You know, and I just think that um, they'll always have a have a place. Um, and it's, it's a bit like fashion. There's certain things that never really go out of fashion um, and they're always around. But um you know, it's uh, like the little black dress, you know, it's always, it's it's always, there are certain things that are timeless. And I think food has that, there are certain things in food that have that similar appeal. And as someone that has a sort of sweet tooth as well, I definitely agree with all those ones. They, they're all the sort of things that I think of in nostalgia for sure. Yeah. Um, and it's been great hearing your opinions and uh, I really hope it's sort of spurred some ideas for many development for our listeners as well. But before I wrap this episode up, I just want to say, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I could listen. I could ask you questions all day. <laughs> thank you, Joe and Holly. It's been a real pleasure. And perhaps I'll come back in the future to talk about trends and maybe even see if I got it right. Absolutely. We'd love to have you on. Thank you. So, Holly, Michael was absolutely brilliant there, wasn't he? Yes, so interesting. I feel like, like you said, we could have spoken to him for hours and just asked endless questions. Yeah, absolutely. But um, was there anything in particular that you took from that conversation that really stood out to you? I guess the main thing I think was, I know we were discussing at the beginning, I suppose the sort of importance of trends in general. And I think it's very easy for people to potentially think that trends maybe should take a bit of a backseat when we're going through a crisis. And I think, you know, what Michael was saying about actually enticing customers through the door and really keeping up to date on trend menus. So just the importance of them in general was definitely a takeout for me. What about you, Joe? I mean, I totally agree with you, really. I really liked his comment on the sort of trends being accelerated through crisis. And I think that's really, really key in terms of the cost of living crisis and the trends that are up on the horizon as well. So I think that's really good to hear. And also, Holly, just before I end the episode, how can our listeners find out more about the trends we've discussed today? If they head to our trends web pages, the links will all be in the show notes. And we've also got an interactive trends guide on there as well, which is full of hints and tips, recipes, and lots of inspiration on how to implement the trends. And of course, thank you so much for joining me as co-host for this episode, Holly. Thank you for having me back. And I'll be back again in the new year with a few more trends episodes as well, which I'm looking forward to. And thank you for everybody for listening to this. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure you follow us to ensure you're the first to hear our latest episodes. But until next time, goodbye.